Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to EuroNurse. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. And hey, by the way, happy Nurses Week. If you're watching us on YouTube, great, LinkedIn, or Facebook, we come to all three of those now. Glad to have you on board. Be sure to hit that subscribe and like button or the share button if you're on Facebook. Um, like to get all the information we can about you. And if this is your first time visiting us here on EuroNurse, be sure to check out our website at euronurse.com. That's where you can find out lots of information about the show. And it's also the best place to go to watch all of our past episodes. And we've got 41 episodes in the bank. Woo. Hey, if you're interested in sponsorship of the show, be sure to hit that sponsor info button to learn more about that. And you are the ones that drive the show. We, no matter how you're watching us live, are able to get your comments through the comment box. So if you've got a question, go ahead. However you're watching us, feel free to put those comments in the comment box because we're going to answer your questions. We've got a great show for you today. This week, we're going to have uh, Jason Alter speaking, and he's going to be talking about the advances in early prostate cancer detection and risk assessment. He's from Exosome DX, so I'm looking forward to a really interesting talk from him. And let's go ahead and bring in our experts right now. Alrighty. So great. Um, for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Vic Sinise. I'm the host and producer of EuroNurse. I've been involved in urology for well over 30 years, and this was my uh, way of, of, of being able to pay it back and, and kind of help educate folks in the urology field. Um, our guest speaker for today is Jason Alter. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Oh, thanks, Vic, and thanks for having me here. My name is Jason Alter. I am the uh, the uh, head of clinical and scientific affairs for Exosome Diagnostics. I've been in the prostate cancer world uh, with prognostic and predictive testing for about 20 years uh, since its inception, and I'm happy to be here today. Great. We're glad to have you on board. And Andrea, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Andrea Strong. I'm a nurse practitioner in Wisconsin. I've been working in urology since 2010. I uh, worked as a nurse for a long time. I did inpatient, I did outpatient. Um, I'm also certified as a urology uh, registered nurse, and I'm the educational director for the Chicago Metro chapter of SUNA. So thanks for having me today. Great, great. Always glad to have you on board here. Uh, let me just take a quick look at our comments here. And let's see, um, Andrea, let's go ahead and have you kick off the show with your favorite story. Again, this is where <laughs> anybody out there wants to throw any comments or shutouts or anything like that. Go ahead and let us know those things. But Andrea, go ahead. Um, I have a special announcement this week. I've decided to run for board of directors for the National um, SUNA board. And, you know, throughout my nursing career, I've had so many wonderful mentors, um, people who were supportive, encouraging, who genuinely wanted to see new nurse practitioners, new physician's assistants, um, new uh, nurses succeed, and for experienced nurses and healthcare professionals to succeed. Um, SUNA really has embodied the spirit of collegiality and education, and I want that healthy learning environment to continue, and that's one of the reasons I've decided to run for director at large. So the goals for the position that I'm seeking will be communication. I want to enhance communication among SUNA and other professional organizations because I think there's a big opportunity that we're missing to collaborate with these organizations, such as the WOCN, SUFU, AUA, <clears throat> the Urologic Association of Physicians Assistants, the Oncology Nursing Society. Another goal I have is inclusivity. Our organization should strive to be inclusive and welcoming to members of our community, all members of our community, regardless of their background, identity, or beliefs. Innovation, we should innovate <clears throat> using new technologies, evidence-based practice, to make sure that we stay at the forefront of our field. Financial stability, we really need to maintain that and practice transparency with our members. Collaboration, as I've already discussed, there's a big opportunity to collaborate with other professional organizations and join the conversation 
nationally and internationally when it comes to urologic care for our patients. And accountability. We need to hold ourselves accountable for making sure that we're delivering the highest quality of care. Um, so I hope that you would consider me a candidate for director at large. Voting doesn't start until um, July 1st. So thank you. Hey, that's great. Uh, I wish you all the best of luck. And as I kind of mentioned earlier that in Chicago, we, we have a, a saying, vote early, vote often. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. I want all the fans out there to support Andrea. Um, got a comment coming in from Susie. Awesome, Andrea. So you Thank got you. fans already. See? All righty. Um, we're going to go to our favorite stories. Again, if you guys have any comments or stories you want to put in on the uh, oh, we got more comments coming in. Nancy says, congrats, Andrea. Thank so you. You got, like I said, you got a fan base out there. You'll have plenty of support. I'm going to lead off with mine because I've got a little bit of a presentation to give. Um, first thing I'm going to do, I, this is a, I got to bring this up. I got this in the, from, from, I hope you, I try to hold it up here so everybody can see it. It's all fun and games until someone loses a wiener. Now, this came in the mail from Amazon. I didn't order it, so I don't know if I got a fan out there who thought I needed something along this line or, or what. If you, if you did, let me know. If you did, thanks. <laughs> if you didn't, Amazon, thanks. But, hey, you get crazy things in the mail, right? So that was my little uh, interesting thing. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to pull this up now. So I just want to uh, ask a question to the audience. What's missing in this? And if you figured this out, it's it's you. Too many buttons. Um, there's an opportunity to become a panelist. We always can use more people. We've got a great group in here, and I love having them. But this is what drives the show is having the panelists. And I was talking with uh, John Lynn, who's one of our panelists on a pretty regular basis. And he said, you know, one of the things we probably should do is promote that more because people might be nervous about becoming a panelist. Well, don't be nervous. What do you need to become a panelist? I like at least 10 years of experience in urology. That's uh, good. A willingness to share that experience um, and video and audio. If you've got it on built into your computer, great. Uh, you're all set to go. What you don't need, you don't need a degree in computer science. Folks, this is easy, especially with the new StreamYard system. Um, all you need is a browser. You don't have to have any special software. It's very easy to be a panelist. I don't expect a weekly commitment. If you're able to come on on a regular basis, that's great. If you're not able to come on, if you want to come every week, even better, but we don't need that. And you don't have to buy expensive equipment. Good video equipment is necessary uh, or is usually included in most uh, computers nowadays. Audio, you can see that most all of us use an accessory mic, a USB mic, but they're not that expensive. A good $17 on Amazon will get you a great mic and really make your sound a lot better. What you're going to get out of this is confidence in public speaking. Maybe you've ever wondered, could I present? Could I do a talk? This is a chance to test it out, see how you do when you speak in public, because you can always watch yourself back, which can be scary, but it's good. Uh, meet exciting people, enough said. And a, most importantly, it's a chance to pay it forward to a great career that you've had so far. Uh, easy to do. Just go to the Euronurse.com website, hit the join button, fill out that quick little form on panelist, and you'll be able to submit your information on, on the form itself. So that's my, uh, my favorite story for today is to try to get you guys to be a panelist. If you're thinking about it, try it out. You could just, you know, be sitting in the square and minding your own business and suddenly, ah, I know the answer to that. And that's your opportunity. So don't be afraid to be a panelist. Give it a try. We hope to get you on board. Um, now I'm going to go ahead and bring Jason in here because you want your slides for this, right? For the yes, favorite story. So let me bring those in here. Add that to the stream. Good. So Great. you are set to talk about your favorite story and then go right into your presentation. Great. Well, I am here to talk today about advances in prostate cancer early detection. Thank you, Vic. Thank you for inviting me again for, for us to speak. And my favorite story, I'm going to shift to this slide. Um, I'm a magician, and usually I will do, instead of a favorite story, I'll do some magic for the audience. I can't do that here in this forum. 
But I will tell you that at the Western AUA last year, uh, which happened to be held in Hawaii, I was seated at a table with uh, a bunch of different urologists. And um, I didn't think I'd have much in common with, with a couple of the doctors there that I just met for the first time. And it turns out that the doctor next to me started doing magic. And I'm a magician. So we started doing magic. And the entire dinner, uh, the two of us did magic for the table. We became great friends. And about two months later, he invited me to join him at the Magic Castle, where he's a member in Los Angeles. And this is a this is an old Hollywood mansion that is by invitation only, where uh, you serve a fabulous dinner, and then you get to experience magicians. Some of the best magicians in the world are performing in small, close settings uh, throughout the mansion. So this has always been a dream of mine, and I'd never been there before. And through this chance meeting with a urologist, uh, we were able to go and experience it. And he's still a good friend. So that's that's actually my my story that I thought would be relevant for this morning. Yeah, that's really so. neat. I thought I thought I recognized the castle. The, uh, the the big organization for magicians is called the IBM, which stands right. for International Brotherhood of Magicians, which I was a, a card carrying member for years. My uncle, who got me into magic, was the president of the IBM at one time. So oh, I really? got to to see. I never got to visit the castle though. So no, it is an experience. Me. Yeah. Very much so. Well, um, so I am a magician and I, I also do birthday parties. So I put that plug in, but I am based in California. So I'm going to just start now and go on with what some of the goals this morning are. Uh, first going to uh, go hey, over Jason, to can I yes, ask sir. you a favor to make that full screen? Go to that screen on the bottom. Or, or, I can yeah. do that. I am. Right. Only afraid that the um, translation will still oh. go, but hold on one second. That's that's why I didn't do that. But hold on, and I will uh, I will turn on the slideshow, and let's see if it still translates. It's still translating. I got gotcha. you. If so, you hit that CC button, that red CC button, it should turn it off. I think. Oh, I think that might have done it. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so appreciate the technical support as well. Uh, so today we're going to cover what exosomes are, uh, if you've never heard of them, the clinical need for a test that is based on them, the exodx prostate, also called EpiTest, uh, how the test works, why it's different, some of the data that's behind it. There's a, quite a bit of data, but I'm going to summarize it uh, briefly this morning, how this works in case studies and a little bit of a summary. So the three goals that I hope that people take away from this morning's discussion, if nothing else, because there is a lot of information in these types of uh, presentations, is the first that this test is really based on very novel science, a lot of very solid data that's been published, it resulted in it getting into the NCCN guidelines and recently the AUA updated guidelines in Chicago about two weeks ago uh, has Medicare coverage. Uh, but the second important point is that this is really unique because most of these types of tests, if you're familiar with any of these, uh, either early prostate cancer detection or tissue-based tests post-diagnosis, all incorporate clinical features that for the most part do and the clinical features often are driving a lot of the performance of your, of your testing. Uh, so this, this particular assay does not have any clinical features. It's a simple gene expression test that stands on its own. So it's called standalone sometimes. And then finally, the studies are all designed with very rigorous inclusion criteria that are looking at the most challenging patients for you in early prostate cancer detection, which would be men who are in a very homogeneous, narrow zone called the PSA gray zone of less than 10 nanograms per mil, who are coming in to make a decision with uh, you and other healthcare providers about whether they need either an initial biopsy or a repeat biopsy because they've had a prior negative. So as I mentioned, uh, the EPI test has been featured since 2019 for initial or repeat biopsy uh, in the NCCN guidelines. 
And then uh, recently it was added to the updated early detection guidelines from the American Neurological Association. Uh, these guidelines were just updated and released at the AUA a couple of weeks ago for those of you who attended the meeting in Chicago. So let's talk about what exosomes are. Exosomes are small bubbles, small microvesicles, and they're really, really tiny. And they're on the order of the size of viruses. Now, when I went to school many, many years ago, uh, and this is a timeline of understanding of what exosomes are and how they're used, uh, most people thought that these types of microvesicles were just junk waste removal. And over time, as you can look at this timeline from the late 60s through the 80s and now to uh, 2012, which is where this particular timeline stops, it was understood that exosomes don't just remove junk or responsible for waste removal from the cell. They're actually a new form of cell-to-cell -cell communication. And that paper in 2008 by Skog et al, right in the middle of this timeline, uh, is by the founder of Exosome uh, Diagnostics, who's actually one of the top four or five people in exosome biology in the, in the world. And based on his discoveries uh, that he came up with, the National Institute of Health uh, poured a lot of money into a common fund program, about $150 million, to help drive exosome discovery. And in the 80s, about 100 papers on exosomes were published in the entire decade. And, and currently, we're publishing something like 40,000 papers per year are coming out. So quite a lot of work is being done. So you can think of exosomes, these small vesicles that are very, very tiny. They're less than typically 100 to 200 nanometers, which is a billionth of a meter. You can think of them as cellular tweets. They go from one cell that produces them to another cell where they're providing information. And they contain RNA, DNA, and protein. And they're very stable vehicles for biomarker detection, which is why they're potentially so useful for diagnostics. And lastly, you can find them in pretty much any bodily fluid that you can think of. And they're not just located in human beings. These are found in pretty much every cell in nature. They're also now known to be involved in a lot of different types of biologic processes. They're involved in normal physiology. They're also involved in oncology. I've listed just a few of some of the hot spots, uh, uh, such as camp, cancer, immunosuppression. They're involved with uh, memory-related diseases, such as Alzheimer's. From uh, virus cloaking is one of the ones that particularly uh, catches my interest because we sterilize products now to prevent or inactivate viruses as well as bacteria. And it's now known that exosomes can actually shield or cloak viruses and protect them in these types of situations. So there's a, a definite, as you could see, there's a definite concern about something like that. And then at the very top, I've added space for two reasons. One, my son is a rocket scientist and I always figure a way to work him into a discussion. But the other is, is that we as a company work very closely with NASA uh, on for men on the International Space Station, measuring exosomes for normal physiology, looking at or investigating how gravity, the lack of gravity uh, affects long term uh, living in in space in orbit. So we're doing quite a lot with exosomes. We're actually a world leader in this biology. And finally, I used to say that exosomes would be a, a taught as a fifth method of cell-to-cell -cell communication, which is what they seem to primarily uh, be doing, such as the ones you classically learned about in schools, such as endocrine and paracrine and so forth, these four well-known classical methods of cell-to-cell -cell communication. And recently, I've had uh, some medical residents tell me that they've already now read about exosomes in, in recent textbooks. So this is now known and acknowledged as a, a fifth classical method of cell-to-cell -cell communication that we're just beginning to, to understand. So it's a fascinating science. But what's the clinical challenge and how do we apply exosomes to it?
Well, the clinical challenge is really about men who come into the clinic with an elevated PSA, which means specifically somewhere between two to 10 nanograms per mil. It could mean over 10, but we have focused the test where patients typically have PSA that's elevated that could either be related to cancer or it could be related to BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia, where the two are conflated. And what you're seeing here is um, one of my favorite movies, The Matrix, where the main character, Neo, is offered the choice between two different pills to take them down, uh, uh, to make a decision about which way they want to go. And I use this because this has been used in the past by other leaders in the field to describe the choice for PSA. When PSA is the biomarker that we have for screening, and we help, we use that in combination with digital rectal exam to make a decision about whether a man should have a biopsy or could safely wait to have a biopsy. And because PSA is so nonspecific, we're never really sure teeing up men. We're, we're teeing up men with the best information we have, but it's extremely limited. And it's extremely limited. And what are the, what are the challenges with these biopsy decisions? Well, you know, there are, even though biopsy is, is, does not cause mort mortality, there are uh, side effects associated with biopsy uh, from the, the widely common just general pain and uh, uh, some fever and so forth. But infection, systemic infections are um, a concern because of transrectal biopsies, which is why the field has become much more accommodating to transperineal biopsy. So you don't want to expose men to a procedure that they don't really need unless they, they truly are candidates because they're at higher risk. But at the same time, you don't want to miss uh, aggressive prostate cancer. And the rate of distant metastasis has been rising for the last uh, 10 years or so, 11 years, or actually since 23 now, it's been going up continuously. And that's in large part been associated with United States Services Preventive, Preventive Services Task Force decision uh, on PSA screening that happened in around 2012 and 2013. So on the one hand, we don't want to miss high-grade cancer. On the other hand, we want to biopsy only men who are at higher risk for needing that biopsy. So where does the test fit in? Well, that's where this test, which I'm going to refer to as EPI, uh, comes in. And both these names are appropriate, XODX prostate or EPI. But the test comes in to help men and their caregivers make um, shared decisions about having a biopsy or deferring a biopsy with more information and better information than's currently available in the clinic. So how does it work? Well, it's a urine-based test that, unlike many other tests that are available out there, does not require a digital rectal exam. There's no DRE required. And because there's no DRE required, excuse me, I advance the slides. Because no DRE is uh, required, uh, this test can either be done in the clinic or the kits can be sent to the patient's home, a sample collection kit, which is very straightforward and the patient mails that back to the laboratory for testing and the results are provided to the practice. So it's a urine-based non-invasive test that analyzes exosome gene expression for three specific genes, PCA3, ERG, and SBDEF. And these three particular genes uh, were selected through discovery because they're associated with high-grade cancer. And what the test does is suggest that patients who might avoid biopsy and which men might have higher risk of high-grade cancer, which is defined as Gleason 7 or higher, and should have a biopsy. In other words, if you're going to find, uh, likely to find a Gleason 6 or a grade group 1 cancer, this test doesn't want to find those patients. This test only wants to suggest which patients upon biopsy you're more likely to find at least a Gleason 7 or higher tumor and, uh, and defer biopsy for men who aren't likely to find that. So how does it work? Well, it, 
these three gene expression are translated to a score that goes from one to a hundred. And based on some data that I'm going to highlight in a minute, we have shown that at a cut point or a threshold of 15.6, any man who has any score up to 15.6 from zero to that 15.6 threshold has a very high likelihood of not finding high grade cancer. And how good is it? Well, I'm gonna show you in a second the negative predictive value, but the likelihood is very high that if you're below that, it's not 100%, but it's either 91% for grade group two or higher that you won't have it, or 97% for grade group three or higher, which is Gleason four plus three, that you won't have it. And as you go above that score, uh, that threshold, the numbers or the incidence of high-grade cancer detected increases. So let me show you how that works. First, I just want to mention, here's where it fits. This can fit in several, epi can fit in either a primary care setting where men are using, uh, excuse me, men are coming in for their physicals, getting elevated PSAs, uh, general practitioners are doing digital rectal exams and making decisions about sending uh, men on to urologists. But primarily uh, where it's been being used today is in the urology office, where the urologist often uh, repeats the PSA and then makes decisions on whether they're going to do a biopsy. And if they find a, uh, if they have a positive diagnosis, then they're going to go on to treatment. But if they don't find something, if they find a benign uh, sample upon biopsy, then typically those men come back for a repeat biopsy because they have a prior negative biopsy. And it's in these settings where you're making an initial or a repeat biopsy decision that the epi test can provide clinical value to the, to the physician and healthcare practitioner and the patient. How does it work in practice? Well, patient pees into a collection device which captures the first 15 mils of the urine sample. And what we look for is the first part of the urine stream. This is not like when you're doing testing for uh, infections where you want a midstream collection. We want a 15, uh, we want a first catch collection. It doesn't have to be first void of the day, but we would like the patient to wait at least an hour uh, from voiding before. So if the patient just voided, then wait an hour and collect that. Uh, we spin the exosomes, these small bubbles down, we break them open and we do a polymerase chain reaction anal analysis for these three genes and translate that to the score that provides you with this result. Now, one of the reasons that this data is so strong is because it's so transparent. So we have a lot of data, but I want to tell you about some of the commonality of the data. All of these studies are prospective clinical trials. And in total, there's somewhere north of 3,400 patients from many different academic and community urology clinics in the U.S. And we also have work from some European uh, laboratories as well. And the intended use population where every one of these studies is focused is really where it's most difficult to understand what the risk is of finding high-grade cancer, which is men who are 50 or older, which is associated with guidelines, the age, with PSAs of 2 to 10. So anywhere less than 10, but primarily 2 to 10, is where this test is designed to be used. And the test, as I'm going to show in just a second, and I mentioned with uh, negative predictive value has really excellent performance. So let me show you, summarize some of the performance with the first validation study, which was published in the journal, the American Medical Association. And it was, uh, it's rare to be published with these diagnostic and prognostic tests in a journal of that caliber, but the data is very open, transparent, and quite robust. So a large perspective uh, clinical trial uh, men all in this very narrow homogenous zone of 2 to 10 nanograms per mil. And the goal was to see how well this 15.6 threshold worked at discriminating between high-grade cancer, which is Gleason 7 or grade group 2 or higher, and low-grade 
meaning gray group one or Gleason six cancer or benign disease and suggesting which men could safely avoid a prostate biopsy. And when you look at this bar chart, which is area under the curve, which is a balance of sensitivity and specificity, and it's a probability scale, you see that PSA, which is widely used on its own, has a top, uh, area under the curve of 0.55, which is a head is a, essentially a toss of a coin. Probability of 0.5 is a 50-50 probability. So using PSA to make this decision on its own is really quite poor. When you incorporate PSA with clinical features such as the plate, uh, prostate cancer uh, prevention trial risk calculator, the blue bar, see it increases the area under the curve, but it's still not very impressive. SOC, a standard of care, is really an in-house standard of care model trying to optimize uh, the, the clinical features that are available. And it's essentially the same as the, the PCPTRC calculator. It's not really impressive. You look at EPI, a substantial improvement in performance in helping understand which of these men truly have high-risk cancer that would be found on biopsy. And then when you add epi with standard of care, which is that gray bar, you see it increases, but only very slightly from 0.71 to 0.73. And what that really indicates is that the clinical features are not really adding any value to what's already the information that's captured by the genomic assay. And that's why this genomic assay doesn't require any clinical features and is offered on its own uh, because it provides all of the performance metrics that are needed to make this decision. The other data slide that I wanted to show you from these validation studies is this particular chart on the top, which is from a pooled uh, meta-analysis of multiple studies. And what you're looking at is this series of increasing bars, which is the EPI scores going from left to right on the x-axis, you see as the epi scores are low, uh, less than 10, you have a very low uh, incidence of high-grade cancer. So on the y-axis, the taller the bar, the increasing likelihood of finding high-grade cancer. And so when epi scores are low, the incidence of high-grade cancer is actually quite low. And as the scores increase, you see that they actually step up. And that's what that's showing is that you're getting an increase in incidence as the epi score uh, rises. On the bottom chart, you're seeing in that same uh, cohort of men, PSA binned out every one to two nanograms per mil, or actually every one nanogram per mil up to 10 nanograms per mil, going from two to 10. You see that you really can't tell any difference between these various PSA uh, numbers. So. While a PSA 8 or 9 you might think is the person to be concerned about, you really can't tell the difference using PSA alone between somebody who has an 8 or 9 and somebody who has a 4. And that's because PSA is so nonspecific. So in the same group of men, you can see the association with high-grade risk that you can see with an epi score that's simply not present, simply based on PSA in this particular case. The other data slide that I want to show you is quite unique in the field of early prostate cancer detection testing, and this is assessing clinical impact. So in other words, uh, for payers want to know how does the test help the healthcare practitioner? How does it help them impact their decision? So this was a double arm randomized clinical study. This was what's called level one evidence because it was a double armed trial where patients were randomized to one of two arms. In one arm, what you're seeing here is in one arm, patients would receive their epi result. So everyone peed in a cup, everyone, uh, we ran the, the test on everyone, but we only gave the answers back to men randomized to the epi arm. We gave it back to their clinicians. And in the control arm, the clinicians and their uh, patients got a note back saying, sorry, you're not getting the epi test result. Please use whatever standard of care processes you normally use in consultation with the patient to make a decision about whether you're going to have a biopsy or not. 
So this was a direct head-to-head -head comparison in two arms in looking at how the epi test impacted patient care and physician practice, which is what reimbursement or payers want to see. And so what we found was that there was a significant increase in compliance when uh, physicians suggested their patients not have a biopsy, compliance in the epi arm went to 92%, which was substantially higher than the control arm. And when physicians, and I think this is key, wanted their patients to proceed to a biopsy based on the test results, there was an 85% increase in compliance. And that was really uh, something that was quite nice to see because it also resulted in the detection of 30% more high-grade cancer being detected in the epi arm. And, and that was not expected by us. Essentially, what the test did and that proved in this particular level one evidence trial was that men who didn't need to have a biopsy and could safely wait did. And we actually increased the percentage of men who should not have a biopsy didn't. But we also increased uh, the likelihood of men who should have a biopsy, but weren't going to listen to their physicians. Uh, maybe they weren't going to come back to the clinic because they weren't in a rush to have a biopsy. We found more high-grade cancer than in standard of care use because more men complied and listened. And so what Epi was, is essentially doing is improving quality of care for, for patients. Uh, we're deferring biopsies in men that are unlikely to find high-grade cancer, and we're sending more men who are at higher risk to have a biopsy, and as a result, actually catching more high-grade cancer, which is uh, what urologists want to be able to do. Uh, they don't want to biopsy men who don't need it, and they want to biopsy men uh, who are likely to, to, do, to need it and to find high-grade cancer when it's uh, present. Now, we recently, and by recently, I mean literally two or three days ago, published a follow-up to this study. And the follow-up is on this slide. There's a lot of data in the study, but I'm only focusing on one point here. And what the payer said to us when the clinical utility study came out a few years ago was, how do you know these low-risk men are still low-risk down the line? We want to know what their results are later. And we pointed out that these men are not diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, but we wanted to know whether the low-risk men still remain low. And two and a half years later is an interim analysis of a five-year study. And what we showed, if you look at these red uh, gaps, is that in the epi arm, in both the clinical utility study on the right and the two and a half year follow-up on the left, is that when your epi results were low risk, which is the green bars, your incidence of high-grade disease two and a half years later was still low. Whereas if your results in blue were, uh, you had a high risk result from the test, you had a significantly higher incidence of high-grade cancer found on biopsy. And so in other words, the bottom line from this particular study was that men who were selected as low risk are still for the most part low risk years later after their initial diagnosis. And this is based on subsequent prostate biopsies. So let me show you as I close out the last few slides, some real world case studies. So here you have four men. These are real patients that I originally selected because their PSAs are very similar. PSAs range from 5.69 to a high of 6.3. The ages are a little bit different. You have uh, from 58, a younger man to 70, which what I, I would argue today is still a very young man. Uh, we had percent free PSA information on a few, PSA density on a few, and MRI on only one, which that patient B had a pyrates three. And the question is, which of these patients really need a prostate biopsy? And today we're making information uh, decisions based on the clinical information you see right here. And it has its pros and its cons, but it's very limited and it's very hard to tell which of these men truly would require a prostate biopsy. There are some factors that argue for it, such as ethnicity, 
and then their PSA density. Nobody is uh, really at super risk, depending on where your threshold is for density. You get a little disparate results for uh, percent free PSA. So the question is, how do you really make a decision on this? And I would submit that using the epi test here, which I'm showing you the results for these men, uh, showed that two of these men came back in red, a high risk. And I, and, and, and I selected men who were at decent high risk to show you some of the, uh, the, the power of this. And the other two men who were African-American actually came as low risk. If you look at the biopsy row, second from last, you can see that in the benign, uh, the men that were low risk, they both were shown to have benign tissue on prostate biopsy. So there was no cancer found. And in one of the men with the high epi result, uh, you not only found a Gleason 7, you also found a Gleason 9 in this particular patient. So that is the man you want to catch. And then one of the men, patient A, you didn't find any benign, uh, didn't find any cancer. And so I put that there in particular because when you get a high risk result, it's not a guarantee that you're going to find anything because there's two potential uh, answers. One is when you get a high risk result and you don't find something, it's possible the test is wrong, right? Test is not 100%. But the other is, is that the test is you're being assessed by biopsy. And so when you assess the test by the gold standard, which is a bio, prostate biopsy, which misses approximately 50% of the cancer, you never know with the high risk score whether the patient, um, whether the test was wrong or whether the biopsy simply didn't measure that. And we actually do have data uh, from men who had radical prostatectomy that showed that a number of these men that biopsy said were benign with high scores actually uh, were had worse disease than it appeared simply based on the prostate biopsy. But that's the practical use. And let me close with one more practical use slide. Here you have uh, 1,250 men. Each bar here is a man. And this is not from our studies. This is just from the lab. And what's common to all these men is that their PSA is exactly four nanograms per mil. And so if you have clinical features and everyone comes in with a very similar PSA, and I've taken it to an ex extreme here with everybody having exactly the same PSA, you really can't tell any differentiation between them with clinical features. Whereas you can see that all the men in blue are the ones that fall below the epi threshold and are the ones who could safely defer a prostate biopsy based on our data, validation data. And as the risk increases uh, above that, you can see that the risk for those men of high-grade cancer being found on prostate biopsy will increase as well. So the conversations that you'll have with your patients at different points in the spectrum are going to be much more nuanced, much more personalized, and provide much more value than when you just talk about the limited clinical features that you have to make that sort of decision. So I'd like to close and open it up for any potential questions uh, to tell you that again, it, this is a non-digital rectal exam, non-invasive urine test that assesses the risk of finding high-grade prostate cancer on prostate biopsy. And it's uh, focused on men in that hard to understand two to 10 nanogram per mil zone of PSA, considering either initial or repeat prostate biopsy. It's based on a lot of significant data, robust science, a unique exosome platform. And because of uh, more in-depth discussion of the information I've shown you, it's in guidelines, AUA, NCCN, and, and has Medicare coverage. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your time this morning to this, and, and I hope uh, you find the presentation useful. Thank you. Yeah, that was really great. Uh, hang on one second here. I just want to add our final panelist to the group here. Uh, wonderful presentation. It, it really kind of summarized everything, I think, in an easy to digest way, which is great. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you, Dr. Was, Alter. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm going to jump in and ask the question that we're all thinking. How much does it cost? Is it covered by insurance? And how much work are we going to have to do to get this covered for our patients? 
Oh, actually, and so in medical affairs, I fortunately don't have to answer the toughest question of all, which is uh, that's the, usually the salesperson. But I can tell you that uh, for Medicare patients, uh, there's uh, no cost out of pocket. This test is covered by Medicare. There's no patient contribution. Um, the list price, the worst case, absolute worst case, if the patient uh, had to pay the full price is nine ninety five. But um, we have a number of different uh, insurance coverages across the country. They're, they tend to be regional in different parts. You'd have to figure it out. But we also have a very uh, advanced uh, what's called ExoCares program, which will let you know if you reach out to the company, call their uh, phone number or reach out to your local representative. They're the experts in the, on that. And I haven't seen uh, in conversations over the last year or so, this program has been in place, any, any issues with payment. Most patients uh, pay something very reasonable out of pocket. I can't tell you. It depends where you are, what that is. Uh, but that ExoCares program is designed to help support the patient. So we don't want to penalize patients. And it's a truism that all these tests uh, when they first come out and are uh, making its way into the marketplace, have this reimbursement issue. But I'm happy to tell you that Medicare uh, is covered. Uh, depending where you are, there's regional coverages. And then there's this uh, Exo Healthcare program, which, at the best of my understanding, is really mitigated any uh, issues with this. But I encourage you to reach out to the company and the local reps who will tell you what's going on in your area. Does it require uh, elevated PSA to as a because it doesn't use PSA? Is it required to have a PSA before you order the test? It is. It's required that so the indications are that and by elevated PSA, you know that elevated is such a wiggly word. Elevated depends on what the doctor is concerned about, but it, that's why the range we have from two to ten. Any PSA between two to ten is uh is considered elevated and it that's based on where the test was tested in all these populations uh men with those psas so uh, i'm sorry was there a second part or because i sort of no that was that was that's the only part i had asked okay yeah no it's um it, it's indicated for that we you know you do have men who say well what about uh doctors or and and nurses who ask about what about that man with a psa of 11 or 12 does the test not work? Or the men who's 49, does the test stop working? The test works fine for, you know, men that are, you know, a little bit younger, a little bit older, or, well, it's greater than 50. It's pretty much anybody greater than 50. And for PSAs, they're outside that range. But the, the reason that it's in this range and it's covered in this range by Medicare is because this is where it's thought most of the clinical challenge is. And that if you had a high PSA, um, although it varies from doctor to doctor, many doctors are not going to not do a biopsy. That's not always true, but it was really aligned with where the uh, the risk was believed to be the, the highest. John, I noticed you had a couple of questions. Did you want to ask those? Oh, you're off. I gotta I gotta unmute myself. I don't know if they're. Well, I I did have a question about. Uh, how this you presented several cases where the epi was positive really really high but then the biopsy was without cancer it could be as you said that the biopsy simply missed the cancer and the cancer was there so my question was was there a multi-parametric mri done before the biopsy and was the biopsy done as a targeted biopsy Oh, that's a great question. And uh, there was one case I showed, not more than one, but only one to make the point, because I don't want physicians and, and uh, healthcare practitioners to assume that falsely that they set the expectation that a high risk result guarantees that you find something because this is a prob probability based assay that is really was originally designed to rule out patients safely from having a prostate biopsy. But to answer your question directly, at the time these studies were done, MRI actually wasn't widely practiced. These That's first studies figured. started. However, 
we've been looking with, I would, I would submit that MRI, and I have a whole section on MRI. If you look at this slide, you'll see the button labeled MRI. Uh, so MRI and, and epi, I believe, and biomarkers overall, if they're a good biomarker assay, are actually complementary. And, and I think that's what the uh, thought leaders in the field are coming to, is, is having this discussion about how you use them together. And the reason I say that is because MRI, and I'll go out on a limb a little bit, so this is my personal opinion, MRI has a much better reputation, even though it's a powerful tool, I, I has a much better reputation than data supports on the negative predictive value. And so a lot of this is subjective and, and there's tremendous variability. And uh, to the point where the AUA guidelines that were just upgraded said pretty much anyone who has uh, an MRI prior to initial biopsy, regardless of their pyrad score, should still have a biopsy. Um, you know, pyrads ones and twos, they said, should have a prostate biopsy a standard 12 core and, and threes through five should have a targeted biopsy and or and, and potentially a, a 12 core on top. So I think there's room for the two of them together. And we do have preliminary data with MRI showing that MRI and uh, the epibiomarker actually capture overlapping but not the same information. And so this potential although I don't have data to show you yet, there's potential to use these in a complementary way. Yeah, I do have some comments that have come in. I'm going to share those or questions. That's a great uh, question, by the way. Yeah. Nancy says, do you prep patients for biopsy with Cipro or use different targeted antibiotics or rectal swab testing prior to biopsy? I think this is more just a general question on the prep for biopsy. Well, and I, you know, I'm not a practicing urologist. I'm a molecular biologist. So I don't, I don't actually treat that. I think that would probably be a more appropriate question for, for the urologist on the call and how they practice. Yeah. And I can I tell can... you, that... oh, go ahead, Andrea, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to um, comment on this, this question. In our practice, we do uh, rectal swab and send that off to look for fluoroquinolone resistance if they are resistant, they will generally receive uh, an injection of IM rocephin. If not, they'll get the, the Cipro. And then pay attention to your local bi um, antibiogram. Uh, thank you. Antibiogram, <laughs> because that can help guide antibiotic selection for your region. Yeah. In, in our own practice, we eliminated using Cipro completely. And now, uh, Rosefin is the drug of choice, and I, I can tell you we've had very few sepsis cases since. Did have a comment come up here from Janine Foster. This is awesome. Thank you. Hey, I can't argue that one. All right. Any other questions from our panelists for Jason? I have a question. We know that there's disparities in prostate cancer screening and treatment among socioeconomic status, among geography, area, and race. Um, can you speak a little bit to the patient population in your studies and how diverse that, that population was? Oh, I think that's a great question. Um, and especially since, you know, some of these tests uh, that are in the same space uh, came out of Europe, which was nothing but white European men. Um, this study was validated in the U.S. with a population that's re that was designed to look exactly like the population in the clinics that you get. So it had, uh, I want to say it had overrepresentation of African-American men. It was probably around 18 to 20 percent, depending on the study. So we did have what, what was considered a normal distribution or above normal representation of at least African-Americans. I forget what the Asian and other contributions were, but it was a mixed population, predominantly Caucasian, but also with a heavy representation of African-Americans. So, and, and we do have some subset analysis in some of these studies with African-Americans, uh, which I'm happy to talk about, or, or you, can, you can find in any of the, the studies that we've published. We had a question come in from Susie Swain. How often should a patient get an epi done? 
Is there guidelines for how frequently this should be done or coverage? Sure. Uh, actually, um, it, this should be used, epi should be used when you're making a new prostate biopsy decision, which is typically, I've always said, you know, that that ranges from a year to maybe 24 months. But uh, the Medicare coverage that was recently updated for the test uh, uh, says that it can be used once per year. So it shouldn't be used less than a year. And I would normally just say use it when, uh, from a medical perspective, it's appropriate to do so to make that prostate biopsy decision. Makes sense. And then as often the guidelines are, or the coverage is based on what they're willing to pay. Yes. How often you can do things. Well, this has been great. Let me see if I have any other comments coming through. Looks like our audience has exhausted all their comments, which is great. That means you've done, you've done your job so well that we have nothing else to ask. I will make one comment that I'll say just from personal with working with patients over the years is that, you know, nothing worse than diagnosing somebody with a low grade cancer and telling them, don't worry about it. Because, and I think John could probably uh, agree with this patients when they hear the word cancer, that's it. They, they, they're like, let's move on to what we need to do. And telling them do nothing is a difficult thing for some patients to accept. Um, so I think these tests that can help to, prevent unnecessary biopsies based on some of the, you know, the, the side effects of having a biopsy. Plus, as you said, the other things that you don't always account for, like the emotional trauma of being told you have cancer, but you don't need to treat it. You know, it's one of those things. I think what's Absolutely. exciting about this field in, in the exome field is that this is a new way that we discovered of, of, intercellular communication. We used to think neurological or hormones, but this is another way that the cells communicate. Right now we're using it as a diagnostic tool. I can't wait in the future of how we can use this as a theragnostic tool. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think, I think for exosome DX, the main thing that everyone needs to remember is that this test is really good when it's negative or normal or below 15.6, it's really good at telling the patients that you don't have cancer. So that when people say negative predictive value, positive predictive value, you need to translate that into common terms that people understand. When you say, when you tell the patients that this is negative, this is normal, that means the chances of you truly don't have cancer is really high. Yeah. Right. And, and right. And I think that's a great, uh, just a uh, an emphasis is, you know, as I said earlier, that the way to think about the negative predictive value is, uh, or maybe I didn't say it is for the physician to be able to tell the patient, I'm 91% certain I wouldn't find grade group two or higher if I did a biopsy, or 97% certain I wouldn't find grade group three or higher if I did a biopsy. That's, that's how I usually talk about what a, a negative predictive value means. But you're right, that is the strength of the test. Uh, is to help suggest which patients don't need a biopsy and the ones that we tee up are more likely at risk. But as I spend some time, there's no guarantee you find something. We have our last question that we'll take for the day. And Susie said, how quickly do you get the results? That's a good question. Um, What's the turnaround? Know, I would time? say don't quote me 100%, but I want to say it's somewhere around three to five days from the time uh, that they s send the urine in. It's it's a very quick turnaround time where uh, it's really limited by FedEx delivering the uh, the urine sample, collecting it at either the from the patient or from the clinic, and then once it gets there, it's probably about three or four days max. So the answer any, is very quick. Any special packaging uh, heat concerns or? It does come. There's a the box contains uh, ice packs to put the urine on um, and there's specific instructions so that hopefully it doesn't, you know, if you're gonna ship, you can store it in the fridge until you're gonna ship if it's over a weekend so that you're not gonna put it there at some point where maybe it gets stuck while the lab is is closed or whatever, uh, but or for holidays. But um, yeah, we just like to keep it cool. Good. Another benefit of this test is that you do not, or the practitioner does not need to perform a DRE before the urine expression or the urine collection. 
Yeah, I like to be able to send it home with the patient idea too. I think yeah, that's actually, um, you know, I talk, I used to talk about why couldn't we do this at home for a long time and, and there was no movement because it takes work to, to validate the, the show. And then COVID came along and all of a sudden this was a priority. And so it really was only because of COVID that we looked into it. And during COVID, it, um, some of our doctors or a lot of our doctors were using it to triage who would come into the office uh, to, because they only wanted to bring the patients at higher risk. Well, great. It's been a great discussion. Appreciate all the help from the uh, panelists. And Jason, it was a great talk. I do want to give a plug here for next week's talk. It's going to be uh, from Sandy Brunello, who's going to be talking about a, in a unique, innovative, non-invasive, leak-free solution for urine collection in women called the Eurocap Female. And for those of you that didn't get enough or have some more questions or just want to hang out, we do have the after party again at uh, go to Euronurse.com, click the button. It'll take you to a Zoom uh, meeting where you can go ahead and chat with everybody. Maybe you're thinking about being a panelist. That's a good place to talk to us about that. So uh, once again, I'd like to thank my panelists. Uh, it had a really great show and enjoy seeing everybody. If you're not coming, enjoy your day out today. It looks beautiful weather today. Have a nice day, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Jason, for the presentation. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Bye, everyone.